You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, you wanted to start today's episode by talking about some new techniques in the field. Yeah, I wanted to talk about some exciting and interesting work that has been going on that I most closely associate with uh, folks like Anima Anand Kumar, Daniel Shu, and Sham Kakade. Uh, and these are some really cool ideas for using what are called tensor factorization methods for learning latent variable models. Now, that sounds like quite a mouthful, I realize. But basically... Latent variable models are, are kind of one of the real pillars of, um, of machine learning and probabilistic modeling. We talked about latent Dirichlet allocation uh, in the last episode, and that's, that's a really kind of prime example. Mm-hmm. And broadly, with latent variable models, we imagine that our data have some unobserved properties that we can't see. And we want to jointly infer what those latent properties are while also learning kind of interesting parameters. So uh, in the case of, of LDA, where we're looking at documents, then that means, you know, what are the topics associated with each individual document? But this is also a powerful way to think about things like clustering, where the idea is that every one of our data has some latent index, some latent membership that we can't see. It's also useful for thinking about graphs and time series. Hidden Markov models are an example of this, where there's some evolving state behind the scenes that you can't see that you're trying to explain with the data. So latent variable models are something we use in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're sort of very powerful ideas for reasoning under uncertainty. They're very challenging to fit, however, and most of the way that we've, we sort of fit them over the years is using a method called expectation maximization. So this is an idea that um, is sort of on the order of about 40 years old. Um, and it's, it essentially is, is a way to do maximum likelihood learning in a, um, in a latent variable model, where the idea is you sort of you do a kind of guessing as to what these latent variables are, and then you update the rest of the parameters given those guesses, and then you update your guesses and you kind of iterate this. So this is pretty successful, but it, it doesn't work as well as we'd like because most of the time that objective that we're trying to that we're trying to maximize is very non-convex. Now, non-convexity is something that we've talked about a lot now in this uh, in this series, and basically what it means is that there's a lot of different places you might land as you're maximizing, you know, as you're trying to find the clusters or find the topics and so on. And um, and if you restart it or you run it on a different day or you have something different for breakfast, then you wind up with a different answer. Right. And the uh, and and that's kind of that's kind of unfortunate and, and unsatisfying. And finding kind of the global maximum in most of these problems is something that's very hard and hard in a formal sort of theoretical computer science complexity sense. But what these guys have been doing uh, lately that's really interesting is is trying to sort of get um, find new fitting methods that provably converge to kind of the same answer every time in an efficient way. And they do this by uh, sort of revisiting a classic idea from statistics called uh, the generalized method of moments. And essentially what it says is that there are some statistics that you can kind of compute from the data. So you can look at what words co-occur within documents or what states tend to co-occur in a hidden Markov model and so on. And you can compute a sort of a, a big table of these different statistics and that if you're sort of clever, and they're very clever, then you can show that these statistics can be used to recover these parameters exactly. Hmm. Um, and this is that that is to say that the parameters are identifiable with yeah. an appropriate set of these statistics, of these these moments, if you will. And um, and then they go about showing that actually then you can sort of recover that map to the to the parameters using kind of matrix decomposition methods. So things like singular value decomposition, but generalized to, to sort of uh, what are called tensors, which you can think of as being kind of matrices, but, but like three-dimensional in this case. 
Um, so it's it's really interesting. It's kind of a it kind of merges some different areas and offers a different kind of guarantee than um, than expectation maximization has. Um, and it's um, it's a very it's a very dynamic area right now because people are still trying to get a handle on how to on how to use these methods and understand them and what the range of things that is that they can be applied to. But I think it's a really exciting thing that's going on right now. That's really interesting. Well, we will have a couple of articles and some papers relating back to these ideas and the people who are working on them on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. You can go there and check it out. So, Ryan, this week's question is about the intersection of statistics and machine learning. Hi, my name is Yakir Reshef, and I am an MD-PhD student at Harvard and MIT doing my PhD in computer science. And what I'm wondering is about the sort of relationship and boundaries between the fields of statistics and machine learning. Uh, it's something you hear about a lot that these two fields sort of have an overlap. Uh, I guess technically, you know, one may be concerned with statistical efficiency and one's concerned with computational efficiency, but in practice, they claim a lot of the same problems and a lot of the same advances. And so I guess one way to put my question to you is, uh, are some of the advances that we've seen in the last 10 years in image processing, speech recognition, translation, are they the result of advances in machine learning or are they the result of advances or uses of statistics? So I think I think there's some really core differences between statistics and machine learning that uh, really have a lot to do with what the objectives are, even if the sort of tools themselves are very similar. So, and this is going to be this is going to be a little cartoonish, but at some level we think of statistics as performing a kind of service related to science, in which uh, scientists broadly defined can answer questions coherently about um, about properties of the world. So, you know, testing, statistical testing, like hypothesis testing, mm -hmm. is a really important thing where there's uh, a, you know, some effect you'd like to understand. You'd like to understand rather whether it exists or not, whether this drug works. Uh, and statistics has a an amazing toolkit for answering questions that kind of have that flavor. Um, and then there's also what I think of as is kind of estimating interpretable properties of the world. So you build a model and it contains variables that are meant to be understandable in terms of phenomena and have units that we understand. And you want to know exactly what those, you want, you want to know what the effect of this genetic modification is on phenotype. And so I, I think statistics sort of views itself as in many ways being about uh, about performing that those kinds of estimations mm -hmm. and getting answers that are trustable and trustable by society broadly defined and as a result in some ways statistics the the field of statistics has been a kind of gatekeeper for a lot of quantitative ideas and estimation from data in which you know it requires a certain kind of rigor for understanding about about different I don't know biological sociological phenomena and so on and, and I should say, of course, statistics includes a lot of other important ideas like optimal experimental design and geostatistics and, and lots of other things. Machine learning has, on the other hand, been largely about prediction and about building systems that are not necessarily interpretable, that don't necessarily, where the parameter estimation that goes into them is not necessarily something that makes sense with units and so on. 
Um, but it's entirely about making an, making a great prediction about something like, oh, is this image a cat or a dog? What's this person saying? Uh, you know, what robot? You know, what environment is this robot navigating within, and, and so on? Things that kind of have grown out of AI. And there's a kind of philosophy that in statistics, since you're doing this estimation or you're doing this testing, then it's really about sort of recovering that truth. Whereas machine learning people have been happier to just make really great predictions. And that some success, there's, you know, theoretical understanding, but also that, you know, empirical success uh, as measured by actually doing well on different problems is, is kind of sufficient. Now, as I said, this is kind of a cartoon, uh, you know, impression of these things. But I think it kind of holds true and informs a lot of these different kinds of problems. And this is different, though, than what Yakir asked in some ways, which is have the successes of machine learning in the last, say, 10 or 15 years, have those been due to statistical ideas? And, you know, at some level, I mean, it's certainly true that statistical ideas inform machine learning, and there's a very similar language. But I think part of the reason machine learning has become very popular is because it's so aggressively embraced you know, new computational capabilities that is very algorithmic. And statistical methodology particularly has this kind of conservatism that's caused it to, to embrace sort of relatively pure algorithmic ideas somewhat slowly. What we're seeing, I think, are the, that sort of uh, is actually a real merging of these fields in which many very good statisticians are starting to pay a lot more attention to the machine learning community for interesting algorithmic ideas and sort of new modeling insights and inference insights. And I think machine learning is really coming around to appreciating that there's this long history of very important ideas and statistics that uh, don't need to just be sort of reinvented over and over again. I guess at the end of the day, I would say that just because a lot of these new successes have involved statistical methodology doesn't mean that statistics is sort of responsible for them. Um, and that and that in some ways, sort of pigeonholing these these things is kind of like not actually a very interesting thing to do. Um, I think some of the very best people around really try very hard to straddle both of these communities and have a hard time, you know, uh, identifying with one or the other. I kind of think of myself as being like this, like I... I like to go to statistics conferences and talk to statisticians, and I try to occasionally write statistics papers. Um, but I also really, you know, care about computation. I care about the sort of the AI version of these problems, and consider the sort of machine learning community to be my to be my home. And I think there are quite a few people who try to find different balances, uh, you know, different balances in this respect. So, Yakir, thanks for your question. If you have a question you'd like us to tackle here on Talking Machines, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or uh, via Gmail at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. So today, our interview is very special. We are bringing you the first part of a two-part conversation that we recorded at NIPS, the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference That's right. that we attended in Montreal a couple months back. And Ryan, we got to speak to three of the like pillars of the community. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. We got them all in the same room at the same time. Yeah, it was really great. So we got to talk to, to Jeff Hinton, who's at Google and the University of Toronto, mm-hmm. Jan LeCun, who is at Facebook and also at NYU, mm-hmm. and Joshua Bengio, who's at the University of Montreal. And these guys are like the founders of this, this very exciting area of deep learning. They're really, really pillars of the field. It's a lot of fun. Definitely. And so we sat down and we asked them first to introduce themselves. Nah. 
<laughs> you, n- you need no introduction. <laughs> um, I'm Jeff Hinton. I work for the University of Toronto and Google, um, and I've been doing neural nets for a long time. I'm Joshua Benjou, and I'm a professor at University of Montreal, and, and I've been doing neural nets and deep learning for a very long time. I'm Yann uh, Lequin. I'm the director of AI research at Facebook, and I'm also a professor at New York University. Great, thanks. So, um, so one of the really exciting things that's going on right now in machine learning is, of course, the resurgence of, of neural networks. And uh, and I know you know you guys sort of kept the faith in this for a long time, and as it sort of ebbed and flowed, and it's been very exciting as the, as they've been shown to be good at a tremendous number of difficult problems, and and sort of it seems like there's new things that they're that they're attacking every day with success, and um, and as a result, it's not only sort of uh, become very exciting within the machine learning scientific field, but also it's it's received a lot of popular attention uh, in the press and so forth. And, uh, and we really wanted to bring you guys together to talk about, to, to sort of give the authoritative history of, of the, the resurgence of interest in this and the kind of rebranding as deep learning uh, of, of ideas like multilayer perceptrons and convolutional networks. And hoped that you s- could sort of talk a little bit about this and about maybe the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, uh, Neural Computation and Adaptive Perception Program, and, and, and also about the exciting technical results that, that enabled this, uh, you know, this kind of resurgence. Um, I guess I should start because I'm the oldest. <laughs> um, so in the 80s, we had a very exciting time after a number of different groups discovered the backpropagation algorithm, um, Yan being one of them. And in the mid-80s, we thought this would do wonderful things. And we managed to get it to do some pretty impressive things for reading handwritten characters and fairly impressive for speech recognition, where it was about on a par with the existing best technology. Um, But it was a disappointment overall. We couldn't learn lots of layers of features. And so the whole idea of deep learning is you want to learn layers of features instead of hand engineering them. And pretty much the only system where that worked really well was a system for handwritten character recognition that Jan developed at the University of Toronto and then later at AT AT&T. And that was used widely, but it wasn't enough to keep everybody interested. And in the 90s, other machine learning methods that were easier for a novice to apply um, did as well or better than neural nets on many problems and interest in them died. The three of us all knew they were ultimately going to be the answer Um, and when we got better hardware and more data and a slight improvement in the techniques they suddenly took off again and now they're everywhere. Yeah, certainly are. I mean, but there were technical innovations too. I, I feel like one of the interesting things that happened was the these observations about unsupervised learning being really important that I, I most closely associate with with you, Jeff, and with you, Joshua. Um, the but now it seems like a lot of this has has sort of faded away, at least for some of these some of the sort of visual object recognition type problems and speech recognition uh, in favor of of Jan's convolutional nets. Well, um, well it, I say, it, really, it really hasn't faded away. So it's the uh, the way the community got interested again in neural nets is through unsupervised running, and that happened in the early early 2000s as as a side effect of the NCAP program of of, of CIFAR. And you could think of uh, this resurgence as a conspiracy, you know, mostly with the three of us, you know, a lot of people af- afterwards. But we we, we kind of got together in the NCAP program with the idea of 
um, re rebooting the interest of the community in those in those problems. You know, how do you learn features? How do you learn representations? Um, and I have to say that was a tremendous success. But it's true that um, so so all of us worked uh, on unsupervised learning. Uh, you know, between the early 2000s and um, you know we're still doing we're still doing it to to a large extent. But it's true that the uh, commercial success or the, the sort of success in practice, the practical success of, of deep learning now has been mostly with supervised learning, backprop, commercial nets, techniques that were around in the late 80s, um, uh, just used in a much bigger, you know, bigger way. We did learn things on the way through unsupervised learning and through uh, our efforts to try to match the performance of kind of more cl classical approaches. So the idea of, for example, of using rectifications as nonlinearities or using uh, uh, contrast normalization, uh, which are used in some of those networks, um, came out of work that uh, we did at NYU and, and others as well on 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 trying to match the performance on, on st of standard computer vision systems on small data sets. So the question was, um, we have small data sets in computer vision that have only a few tr thousand training samples, and if you train a convolutional net of the type that we had in the late 80s, early 90s, the performance would be very, very much lower than what you would get with uh, uh, classical vision systems, mostly because those networks have many, many parameters, and it's very hard to train them. I mean, they, they learn the training set perfectly, but they overfit on the on the test set. And so we, we devised a bunch of architectural uh, components like like rectification, contrast normalization, various other things of this type, and unsupervised pre-training that seem to improve the performance significantly, which uh, Allowed those those sort of very heavily learning based systems to match the performance of, uh, or at least come close to the performance of classical systems. Um, but it turns out uh, all of this is rendered, uh, you know, irrelevant or moot if if you have lots of data and you use very large networks uh, running on on very fast uh, computers. So I'd like to uh, add something about the supervised versus unsupervised. As far as I'm concerned. There are underlying principles and uh, motivations that cut across the supervised, unsupervised divide that have been behind the, the work in, in neural nets and deep learning and, and what we call distributed representations. Uh, and, and these are the things that matter. The, you know, doing it supervised, unsupervised is, is, is important in practice. Um, now, I think that the importance of the unsupervised learning aspect of this is going to grow in the future as we try to apply our methods to much larger data sets, most of which humans won't have time to manually label. And uh, the other thing I want to say is that these, these principles that cut across these methods were motivating this, this uh, renewal of neural nets and deep learning. In the late 90s, early 2000s, it was very, very difficult to do research in neural nets. In my own lab, I had to twist my students' arms to do work on neural nets. They were afraid of uh, seeing their papers rejected because they were working on the subject, and actually it did happen quite a bit for all the wrong reasons, like, oh, this is we don't do neural nets anymore. Um, but um, I looked carefully at the alternatives that were um, the way people were doing it in, in those years, and. I tried to even show mathematically why it wouldn't work for uh, the kinds of ambitious problems we wanted to solve for AI. And that was how I started moving, really uh, contributing towards the new new wave of, of deep learning that, that CIFAR has um, promoted. 
So some of our papers in the 2000, in the mid 2000s, in fact, Joshua and I co-wrote co a paper on this, was basically to, to point to that fact that, uh, you know, basically it was, you know, look people, you can use uh, kernel methods or things of that type, but this is not going to take us to, you know, being able to solve computer vision, for example, because the, the type of functions that are learnable by those systems is just too simple. Um, and, and so, and we had sort of experimental evidence for this. We had, you know, Joshua had done some, uh, some my theoretical work on this, uh, but it wasn't enough to convince the community. Of course, the community, particularly the communities like computer vision and speech, they are only convinced by results. That that's that's the only thing that counts, and 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 you know, and uh, uh, good results. But it's true, as as Joshua said, um, we all have the a sense that the the future belongs to unsupervised learning, and we're seeing this right now in uh, natural language processing. So, um, uh, there's a set of very popular techniques that consist in uh, uh, embedding words and text, which um, you know, actually uh, Joshua pioneered many years ago, following Jeff's work on symbols. That's right. So you know, the idea of distributed representation, and then how you do how you train uh, uh, distributed representations for for words, uh, and then there are various techniques to do this. Uh, Joshua came up with one, you know, about ten years ago, and uh, there was some some work by uh, Onkolo and Weston, who are now at Facebook, on on this idea um, in the the you know, a few years later, and now it's kind of the, the rage. Everybody uses word embedding. Uh, some of those techniques are deep, some of them are not, but they, they're all kind of based on this uh, on this idea. And that's unsupervised. That's, that's one of the big recent success of unsupervised running. Although the funny thing is the algorithms that are used are actually supervised running algorithms. It's just that they're used in, the, in, in, a, in data where you don't need separate levels. It's just text. Yeah, I, it seems like, you know, thinking hard about distributed representations is some of the most exciting stuff that's, I think, come out of this resurgence. It's a, a very different way of, well, I would say it kind of challenges a very long history of knowledge representation and, and feels so much, you know, it feels very biological, right? Uh, I don't know, Jeff, can you talk a little bit more about distributed representations and maybe explain, explain that to our audience? Okay, so the idea is that you have a large number of neurons and they're conspiring together to represent something and they each represent some tiny aspect of it and between them, they represent the whole thing and all its wonderful properties. And it's very different from a symbol, where a symbol um, is just something that is either identical or not identical to another symbol, whereas these big patterns, these distributed representations, have all sorts of intrinsic properties that make them relate in particular ways to other distributed representations. And so you don't need explicit rules. Um, you just need a whole bunch of connection strengths, and one distributed representation will cause another one in just the right way. For example, you could read an English sentence and get a distributed representation of what it means, and that could cause a distributed representation um, that creates a French sentence that means the same thing. And all of that can be done with no symbols. So the, the, the power of that concept, I think, um, uh, can be seen in the fact that all of us uh, in all of our labs are essentially working, at, working on embedding the world. You can think of it this way. Mm -hmm. So, how do we how do we find sort of vector representations for for words, for text, in various languages, for images, for video, uh, for everything in the world, for people actually? Um, so you can match people's interests with content, for example, which is something Facebook is very interested in. Uh, so, uh, so finding embedding is a very 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 interesting thing, and th and there is you know a lot of a lot of different methods for doing this. Uh, there's the for text is the very famous. Um, uh, method uh, called War to Vec, invented by Tomasz Mikolov, um, and uh, and you know, following the neural language model that uh, 
uh, Joshua had worked on uh, before that. Uh, Jeff and I also had worked on separately on different methods to do uh, kind of high-level embeddings rather than sort of low-level embeddings. So things that would apply to, to images, for example. So this is called, uh, I guess it could be called metric learning. So this is uh, uh, situations where you have uh, a collection of objects and you know that uh, two different objects are actually the same object with different views or the same category. So two images of the same person uh, or two views of the same objects or two different instances of the same category. Um, and so you show, you have two copies of the same network, you show those two, uh, those two images and you tell the two networks, you know, produce the same output. I don't care what output you produce, but the produ the, your output should be, should be nearby. And then you show two uh, objects that are known to be different and then you kind of push away the two outputs of the, of the networks uh, away from each other. Uh, Jeff had a technique called NCA. Um, uh, to do this neighborhood component analysis, we came up with a technique called Dr. Lim, and then uh, Jason Weston and uh, Sami Benjo came up with a technique uh, called Wasabi, which they used to do uh, image search uh, uh, on Google. Google used that as kind of a um, method to, to build uh, vector representations for images and text so you could match them in, 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 in search. At Facebook, we're using techniques like this for face recognition. So we find embedding spaces for faces, which allowed us to search very quickly through millions of, uh, hundreds of millions of faces actually to, f to, find, to find you in pictures essentially. Uh, so those are very powerful methods I think that are going to use increasingly um, over the next few years. Is, is there a point where you sort of need to have like discrete grammars and things on top or, is it, or can it be distributed kind of the whole way down? My belief, um, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I'd have said well maybe in the end we need something like a discrete grammar on top. Um, right now I don't think we do. My belief is we can get a recurrent neural network that is something with an internal state that has connections to itself, so it sort of keeps going over time. We can get that kind of network to translate from one language to another. This has been done at Google, and it's been done in Yoshio Benjo's group. Um, we can do that with nothing that looks like symbols with symbolic rules operating on them. It's just vectors inside, and it works very well. It's at about the state of the art now, both at Google and in Yoshio's lab. And um, it's developing very fast. And I think the writing's on the wall for people who think the way you get implications from one sentence to the next is by turning the sentence into some kind of mental ease that looks a bit like logic and then applying rules of inference. It seems that you can do a better job by using these big distributed vectors, and that's much more likely to be what people are up to. Yeah, there's, there's a very interesting kind of white paper, position paper perhaps, by uh, Leon Boutou called, uh, the title is From Machine Learning to Machine Reasoning, which basically advocates the idea that we can, we can use those vector representations as the basic uh, components of a sort of an, you know, algebra for reasoning, if you want. Um, and you know, some of those ideas have been tried out, but not to the extent that, that uh, we could exploit the full, the, the full power of it. Uh, and you start seeing work now um, so, for example, my colleague Rob Fergus, who's one of our students, Wojciech Zaremba, and someone from Google, uh, worked on a, um, a system that uses distributed representation that identifies mathematical identities. And it's kind of one of those problems that is uh, very, very sort of classical AI, if you want, you know, uh, like, you know, solving integrals and stuff like that. And uh, that, you know, involves reasoning and search and stuff like that. And we can do this with recurrent nets now, uh, to some extent. Um, then there are people working on, you know, how do you um, augment recurrent networks with sort of a, a memory structure? So there's, there's been ideas, you know, going back to the early 2000s about this or late 90s, uh, like LSTM, which is, you know, pretty widely used at Google and other places. Uh, so it's a recurrent net that has sort of a separate structure for memory. 
um, you could think of it as sort of a kind of a processor part and sort of a memory part where the processor can write and read from the memory. Like this neural Turing machine. So neural Turing machine is one of these examples. There's another example also uh, Chisholm Weston, uh, Sumitra Pryor, Antoine Board have proposed something called a memory network, which is a kind of a similar idea. Um, it's um, somewhat simpler than LSTM in many ways. Uh, so it's got an associative memory next to a recurrent net. And, and and there's a sense that we can use those those type of methods for for things like you know producing long chains of reasoning, uh, you know maintaining kind of a, st uh, a sort of state of the world uh, if you want. So so there's very cute example uh, in the in the memory network where you can tell a story to the network, like say Lord of the Rings, right? So you know Bilbo takes the ring and goes to Mount Doom and then drops the blah blah blah, and then you know you you tell all the events in that story, and at the end you can ask a question to the system. So where's the ring? And it tells you well it's in Mount Doom, and so you know because it maintains sort of a, a, a an idea of the state of the world, uh, and it can respond to to questions about it. Uh, um, so that, that's that's very cool because that that yeah. starts to get into the stuff that a lot of you know, kind of symbolic AI people say neural nets will never be able to do. I'd like to add something about the question you asked uh, regarding distributed representations and, and why they are so powerful and behind a lot of what we do. So one way to think about these vectors of numbers is what they really are are attributes that are learned by the machine or by brain, if we think that's how brains work. So a word or an image or any concept is going to be associated with these attributes that are learned. Now, associating attributes to concepts is not a new idea. That linguists will, uh, you know, define things like the gender or plural or this is an animal, this is uh, alive or not. And people try to build semantic uh, descriptions of the world. Do that all the time. But here, the difference is that these attributes are learned, and uh, the the learning system discovers all of the attributes that it needs to do a good job of predicting the kind of data that we observe. And the, the important notion here is the notion of composition, something which is very central in computer science and also in many of the older ideas of AI that people thought, uh, cognitive scientists thought that neural nets cannot do composition. Actually, composition is at the heart of why deep learning works. In the case of the attributes and distributed representation I was talking about, it's because there are so many configurations of these attributes that can be composed in exponentially many ways that these representations are so powerful. And when you consider uh, multiple levels of representations, which is what deep learning is about, then you, you get an extra level of composition that, that comes in and that allows to represent even more abstract things. So a nice example of distributed representations where you can see them at work in people is if you just have symbols, you might have a symbol for a dog and a symbol for a cat and a single for a symbol for a man and a symbol for a woman. Um, but that wouldn't explain why you can ask anybody the following question. And young kids can do this. If you say, um, you've got to choose. Either dogs are male and cats are female or dogs are female and cats are male. People have no doubt whatsoever. It's clear that dogs are male and cats are female. And... That doesn't make any sense at all. And the reason it's clear is because the vector for dogs is more like the vector for man, and the vector for cats is more like the vector for woman. And that's just obvious to everybody. And it, if you believe in symbols and rules, it doesn't make any sense. So it's always fascinating to hear from these three 
men, but uh, to hear them in conversation with each other, it's just, there's something yeah. about that. It's super fun. I, I love hearing the sort of the history of an area like this right from the horse's mouth, you know, like, oh, definitely. actually, so the first person to count. Definitely. And stay with us because you're going to hear more of this conversation next episode. That's right. And by the way, make sure to send us your, your listener questions. We'd love to, to answer more questions on the air. Yeah, you can get a hold of us uh, via Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or via Gmail at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. I think that's about it for us this week, Ryan. I think so. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And you've been listening to Talking Machines. Talking Machines.